0: Morning. Glad you're here at Vintage Church gathering this morning. It's a exciting time for us. Um, The this month we will take some time out of our regularly regularly scheduled program and celebrate uh, the Advent, uh, the Advent season, the time where God has taken us and. He has shown us and given us his son, a time that we are forever grateful for, a time that we are forever indebted to God too. I want to tell you, I something changed in me when I started celebrating the Advent season. Um, I'm not attributing uh, some massive... Overhaul in my life, what I'm saying is during the Christmas season, I grew up in um, I grew up in a situation where my parents did Christmas really well and I am forever grateful for that. I am forever grateful that they did it well and and presents were done very well and i'm I'm grateful for that too and the season I believe they did the best that they knew how to focus our lives, to focus our attention on uh, the things of Christ. But I grew up, in spite of my parents, I grew up sort of spoiled. Uh, And I grew up expecting good things for me as opposed to um, treating them like a gift and a blessing and um, something that is not an expectation. And so I spent many Christmas seasons. I remember the very first really disappointed Christmas I had. Can you imagine as an adult what the very first Christmas that I was really disappointed when it was? The first child, the first child. That was the most disappointing Christmas I've ever had because my family spent a ton of money on my child, and we spent money on my child, not a time, but we spent a little bit. And I, all of a sudden, wasn't the focus of Christmas. Um, I, I know that that sounds horrible to say, but I mean, I'm just, wouldn't it do me any good to lie to you up here. It wasn't until really that I started, we started doing this here. And in general, personally, I started taking some time to focus on the Advent season that I really, um, my perspective began to change. And um, it changed how, it changed our view on Santa Claus and everything, a bunch of things that it revolved around Christmas. But most importantly, when we started taking week by week and even subsequently day by day and focusing on the Advent season, what I found is, is that it takes that and more to combat the Christmas of the holiday and but it 's a good start for all of us, and so we stop during this time because we want us to slow down and I think that 's what ultimately it takes I think it takes a slowing down because what what can really happen is it starts in late uh, late uh, November, especially when Thanksgiving's a week later, starts in late November, and then it's a party here, and a party there, and a friend gathering here, and a friend gathering there, and a Christmas with family here, and a Christmas with family there, and before you know, or seven more of those, and before you know it, you are, you are past the season, and you have blown through it, hardly focusing, hardly taking a breath to focus on Jesus. The reason we celebrate the season entirely and my thought is this and I I truly believe this with all my heart we might as well abolish the season as Christians in general altogether, not even recognize it if we're not going to stop and put Jesus at the center of the season we can't verify 100 with 100 percent certainty that Jesus was born in December especially not December 24th or 25th or whatever the date is supposed to be I don't even know we can 't verify that, so if we can 't stop in this time that has been set aside to focus on Jesus, we might as well just not do anything altogether. So I would challenge you as we begin this season to to put your focus on Christ to slow down with these uh, advent sermons that we have and and take these weeks and put your focus on Christ, but also um, there are some great resources for you and your family and for Advent readings that start today and they go through um, the they go through the entire month of December. Uh, Julie posted one on her Facebook. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible has that was you right? The Jesus Storybook Bible has a um, an Advent uh, guide for the month of December, and so I think it would be wonderful and special and memorable uh, if you took time to do that. And so that's why we're taking time. To do that. Uh, if you see kind of behind our communion stuff here, uh, we have the Advent candles. Um, it's the Advent wreath of sorts. The, uh, the circle here represents uh, the eternal Christ, the never-ending love that he showed us, uh, God showed us by sending Jesus to the world. It represents everlasting life that comes through Jesus. Uh, The four candles represent the four Sundays before Christmas Day, each one representing promise, light, love, and hope. The three purple candles represent the royalty of Jesus as the Son of God and the King of our lives. The one pink candle represents the joy of having Jesus in our lives. And the light of the candles remind us that Jesus called himself the light of the world. The white candle in the center is the Christ candle and it represents the purity of Jesus. Today we will light the first purple candle that will symbolize the promise of the coming king. If it looks like it's going to catch on fire, just someone put it out. Don't stop me in the middle of the sermon. Today we'll look at the first, it will be in the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, We're going to do something a little unique today. Um, We're going to go back into Exodus and look at the Passover and see how the Passover compares to the Advent. Now you're saying, you might be thinking, Bryce, wrong holiday, right? (laughs) Wrong holiday. The Passover is traditionally and rightly celebrated around the time that we celebrate the resurrection. Um, you, you're right if you, if you caught that. Uh, but today I think that we can look at the Passover from Exodus and we can see this connection between the Messiah, the, the Savior that came to the people of Israel during that time, and an even greater Messiah who came and dwelt amongst his people. If you would, we're going to be reading in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 today. And I'm not going to give a complete um, exposition of this only because we've done that recently in our series through Exodus. But what I want to do is I'm going to use Exodus, the Passover, in Exodus 12 as a backdrop for our story today. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Till all the congregation of Israel on the tenth day of this month, every man, shall take, every, <clears throat> every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which would they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me this morning? Father God, as we celebrate this first week of Advent, Lord, help us to just slow our minds and our hearts and our lives. Help us to have focus, the proper focus to where we place our attention and our hope and our anticipation and our joy upon you. That our anticipation of this season will be the Christ child born. Lord, that anything else, that gifts, that family, that food, that anything else will be considered a cheap substitute to the riches of of the advent of Christ. Lord, bless our time, bless our service today. Help us to honor you with our words. Help us to honor you with our life, that you may receive all the glory and honor, and we receive none. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Sure, you all remember the background of the Passover. It was the night before the last plague against the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh had hardened his heart and he refused to let God's people go. So, God was going to give one more plague, and it was the plague that topped them all. He was going to kill the firstborn in all of Egypt, and then Pharaoh would let the people of God go. The people of God were instructed to put Uh, to put the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of their house. And then they were given instructions on their preparedness because they were about to actually leave Egypt. The Lord had already made a plan for rescue. He had already put it into action, and it was going to happen. So they put their sandals on, they girded their loins, they had their belt on, and they had their staff in their hands. They were not just sitting down for a meal, but they were preparing for the rescue of the Lord. Four days uh, before the Passover, they were supposed to take uh, a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, uh, which was the best of the best. A lamb not only without spot or blemish, but one that was just the right size for the specific family. And if the family was too small, they were to join with another family so that it would be the right size for that group they were eating. They were to kill the lamb, and they took it and put the blood, like I already said, on the doorpost and the lintel. Of the house, then they were to roast the lamb with um, and have uh, unleavened bread and eat that all with bitter herbs, but leave nothing until morning. And whatever was left over to the morning, they were burn it all up. They were to do this because this was the instruction of the Lord. They were to do this with a sense of readiness, with a sense of preparedness, because God's redeemer, God's rescuer, was going to get them out of slavery. Was going to get them. Out of the land of Egypt, the Lord would come through that night and He would save them. The angel, of the Lord of course, went through the city, and wherever he saw or he went through Egypt and wherever he saw uh, blood on the doorpost and lentil, he passed over. it was a sign of uh, belonging to God, it was a sign of being a part of the family of God, and it was a sign of rescue, and wherever he did, not he killed the firstborn, both man and beast, in all of Egypt. So you look at that and you might say, so what are the connections between the Passover and Advent? And I think there are a few. And I want to just sit and focus on those today. And um, hopefully this will be a good start for you and for me to our Advent series. The first idea that I want to point out is this. That in the Passover and with the coming of Christ, God offers his people an identity with the Passover and the coming of Christ, God offers his people an identity. Egypt had been in slavery for over 400 years. Now, just for some perspective, uh, and I think I told you this when I preached this sermon before, but the Mayflower landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. Or, you know, that's what history tells us. Um, the Mayflower landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. So, sometime around that time. So, the Egyptians have been in slavery longer than the Mayflowers have been on American soil, if that gives you perspective. So if you can imagine, how, how, how many of you had have some close connection with your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, right? You might know who they are. You might know about them. Um, I personally can't tell you their name. I can go back to my great I can go to my great-grandparents. I have information on the rest of my family. I can look it up, but I can go back to my great-grandparents, and I know their name offhand. Well, what's happened is after 400 years of slavery, over 400 years of slavery, these people have lost their identity. They've lost who they were. Generation after generation have passed since Joseph was there. Now, remember the time of Joseph was a prosperous time. Joseph was the second in command in all of Egypt. God's people were not under the same punishment. They were not under the same judgment as, um, as they are now. And you remember, the Bible puts it, Joseph died and they forgot, the leaders forgot about Joseph. So some time had even passed since then. So there was some pre-oppression that was going on with these people. And they had lost their identity it had been, there, there's very similar connection to the time before the Passover and the time before the advent of Jesus, right? If you remember, or if you know this from history, it had been some 400 years before a prophet had been known in Israel, before the time of Jesus. John the Baptist, as a matter of fact, was the first prophet in over 400 years. They were in captivity as a matter of fact, they spent much of their time uh, leading up to Jesus in captivity. There were certain revolts and stuff like that. There's even uh, the Maccabees, is, it's, it's written about the revolts that they carried, a prominent Jewish uh, family, uh, and, and it was written about the revolts that they carried, but they were not prophets. They were not prophets ordained by God. They're, the Jewish people had been basically in slavery, again, for over 400 years, without a prophet, without a voice. And then a voice crying out in the wilderness came. John the Baptist came. These people, the Maccabees and all of the people leading up to Jesus, they were fighting for their earthly freedom, but it seemed like a long time before they had lost their fight for their spiritual freedom. They had lost their identity. They had lost their identity. During this time, much like the time of the Passover, the people of God were hoping for, for redemption, we recognize this and we celebrate this in our Advent time. I think about those faithful of God in both times, anxiously waiting, anxiously waiting for a Redeemer, observing and looking for signs or looking for um, looking for fulfillment of prophecy, preparing and praying for the Messiah. Through the Advent celebration, we are exuberant now. Because we no longer have to um, hope. We no longer have to look for signs. We no longer have to, to wait in anticipation for the first coming of the Messiah. Because the Messiah has come, the Messiah is here. And the only anticipation that we have anymore is the time where he returns and the time where he calls his people home and he fulfills all things and he makes all things new. You may not know this, but a major, a major tenet of Judaism is still to this day the anticipation of the Messiah. Did you know that? It is not, not, it's not like when Jesus came, they, they like gave up and said, Oh darn, I guess since Jesus is widely accepted, there, there is no Messiah. No, there is still a belief, and there is still a hope, and there is still an anticipation that Jesus that a Messiah is going to come, that his name is just not... Jesus Christ. So the Passover, the Passover was a means of a Savior, a Messiah coming. And Advent is the same, but it offers a better way. I think Advent offers security and identity for an unprotected people. An, un- an unprotected people, they become free to be who God call- calls them to be. They have identity. They have purpose. They have protection. Who's the most protected person, do you think, in this country? Who did you say? Oh, I thought you said Tom Cruise's kid. I was like, that's random. Probably the president, right? It's hard to quantify that, but probably the president. The president is probably the most protected person in this country. As a matter of fact, did you know that? there's not just one Air Force One, right? There's not just one Marine One. Air Force One, it happens to be the plane that the president is on that day, right? Marine One is the plane that the president is on. Do you know the reason, that, the reason that's the case is because this protection follows the president. The identity of the plane is determined by the person that is in the plane. The identity of the Uh, helicopter is determined by the person that is in the helicopter. This protection follows the president. Do you know the White House is probably one of the most protected houses in the country? But you know this to be true also? If the president were to stay a night in your house, it would then become one of the most protected houses in the country. Here's what the advent of God does. The advent of God gives his people an identity and protection because instead of God passing over God dwells. God dwells among us. The reason that the Advent is so beautiful and so wonderful is that God stays in your house. And with that, we are offered the same protections, the same hope, the same strength, the same power, as if we are living in the house of God in heaven with Him. Because where God dwells, those things go. Just like the president, just like Air Force One, Marine One, just like the White House, and just like if the president were, come, were to come and stay in your house, the Christian is offered an identity and protection because God is there with him. The Advent provides the Christian with an identity and the benefits of knowing God, and that is protection, love, security, a place, a place. It truly is not just because we're with God, although that is the main reason, but it is because we have the benefits of knowing God that the Bible says, the psalmist says, better is one day in his house than a thousand anywhere else. Because we would never, once we have tasted of the Lord, once we have tasted of this beautiful advent, this coming of God, we would never find satisfaction being under anybody else's protection, being under anybody else's care, and belonging to any other kingdom than the kingdom that we belong to. The coming of the Messiah, the advent of Christ, was and is the same or similar to the Passover, but it is way better. Instead of God passing over, he dwells with his people he gives us this identity. He gives us this understanding. His dwelling does. And He gives us freedom. There are a few things I think that are sort of results of being, having an identity in God and knowing Him and being under that protection. And I want to just point those out today. And we see these things because we know how God established. We've already gone through Exodus and we know how God established His people later. But they were given, because of that Passover night, they were given a freedom to worship. The Israelites were freed with the sole purpose of worshiping God. Do you remember uh, the Lord said, let my people go. And if you've watched um, the Ten Commandments, you, you've repeated that maybe in life. Let my people go. But that's, you can't stop there. What did the Lord actually say? The Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may come and what? Worship me. Worship me. That first, that Passover, that Passover, freed the people of God from Egyptian slavery to the promised land so that they could worship God. They were not freed to start a new branch of Egyptian slavery, promised land edition. Right? It was not, they were not freed to take what they knew of the past and just do it over here in a different area under their own terms or to enslave others. They were free to worship God. The blood on their doorpost meant possession. It meant that they belonged to God, that they were owned by God. It was a stamp of his protection, but friends, it was a stamp of identity. And if our identity is in God, subsequently we see in Christ. If our identity is in Christ, then our freedom is to worship him in the way he has prescribed. And he has prescribed that we worship him in spirit and in truth. It was a freedom of worship, having that protection and that identity in God. It was the beginning of a new people. It was the beginning of a new people. They had an opportunity to reinvent their way of living where they had no identity. Over the last hundreds of years, they had forgotten what it was like to be in the family of Joseph. They had forgotten what it was like to be uh, an Israelite, a proud Israelite. They didn't know what it was like to be free. They were dependent so much on Pharaoh. But now they had freedom to start this new people. There were so many possibilities of how they could live their life, of of the future in the future promised land. They could finally listen to the voice of God. They could finally do His will and listen to His commands. And be unhindered. Now we know that that didn't exactly go that way all the time. But the freedom was there. They were no longer a slave to Pharaoh. No longer a slave to the gods of Pharaoh. The freedom was there to worship the God of the Bible. And the blood on the doorpost and the lintel was the first sign to them that it wouldn't be treason and it wouldn't mean death to be God's people again. He created a people. The Passover shows a freedom from slavery of the past. One of the coolest aspects of the Passover teaches us comes a few hours after the actual Passover. Remember what happened. Pharaoh said, go. Go worship your God, right? He lets him go after this last plague. But then just as soon as he basically says yes, he also changes his heart. And he goes after them. We all know the result of that, right? Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. With the protection of God, friends, the people of God did not have to worry about the enemies of God. They looked back and they saw their past and it was wiped out. It was gone. It was erased. The enemies had crushed them with a hard burden. And as they produced and as they honored God, when they honored God, the enemies crushed them even more. And it felt like that burden was never going to leave. But then they put on the yoke of God. And they found that the yoke of God was easy and his burden was light. And they followed God. And as they followed God, they looked back and their enemies were being crushed. See, the Passover tells us not only that it's a beginning of a new people and it's a freedom to worship, but the Passover tells us that through Christ, through God, our past is crushed. How does this all relate to the advent and of a better Messiah? Well, the birth of Christ ushered the beginning of a new people who were free from the bondage of the law and their slavery Through Christ, they were completely able to worship God like God had prescribed. A new identity was offered. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not bound to the old way of the law. But this time, the most highly anticipated and often missed coming of the Messiah would not just change things for the Jewish people, but would change things for the entire world. It meant perpetual protection, a freedom to worship for all people who have the blood on the doorpost and lentil of their heart. The Advent means a new people under the banner of Jesus, a once and for all people who will never be destroyed. It means the enemy is defeated in the way that he has never lost before. And he is just holding on to the little power that he may have or perceived power until he is finally destroyed, punished forever. The advent means the protection of God, the promises of God, and the identity that we have in God. Everywhere we go, we are the house of God. Everywhere we go, we are under the protection of God because the Spirit of God is lives in us. And the throne room of God is in our heart. And so he offers us, he offers us only what Moses could offer temporarily. He offers us permanently, both now and forever. In the Passover, we're given an identity. In the Passover and with the coming of Christ, God offers a Redeemer. And this is the most wonderful and beautiful aspect And how the two connect. Sometimes we don't often consider this. And you need to think about this. But both Egypt and Israel were under the wrath of God at the Passover. Have you thought about this? Both Egypt and Israel were under the wrath of God. Anyone that was in Egypt at the time who did not obey the will of God. Who did not obey the purposes of God and the plans of God would have faced the wrath of God of God. When we think of it this way, we see that the Passover has much more in common with the coming of Christ. Friends, the Israelites were only saved because they had the blood on their doorpost and lentils. They were not saved because they were Israelites. They were not saved because they had a history of following God. They were not saved because they were the covenant people of God. Well, directly at least. They were saved because they had the blood Of God, as he had prescribed, cover them. They had chosen, if they had chosen not to obey God, their firstborns would have perished along with the Egyptians. And in that time, God offered a temporary Messiah in the form of Moses that would lead his people to the promised land. A salvation that was temporary and was hindered by Moses' mortal nature. But in the Passover, friends, he points us to a better Messiah. As a matter of fact, the blood that preserved the people of God from the wrath of God would come from a lamb also, a spotless lamb without a broken bone, who would not be left out until morning. The redemption of mankind would come through a lamb. And John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb that the prophet Isaiah said was a better way than the prophets and the earthly leaders of the people. Ezekiel called the advent and the life of Christ a new exodus, and Jeremiah called the work of Christ a better deliverance. Through the advent, we see that a better redeemer has come. A better Moses has come, whose salvation is not temporal but eternal. I imagine those Jewish people waiting for the final plague of the Lord, the final nail in the coffin. How eager were they? They knew something was going to happen. They wouldn't have been dressed up. They wouldn't have had their sandals on. They wouldn't have their their, their belt on, their staff in their hand. They wouldn't have made this quick meal. If God was not going to do something great, how eager, eager were they as they watched and prayed for what the Lord would do. They were patient, but they were expectant. They were observant and hopeful and prepared. And I imagine they spent their time in prayer. As a matter of fact, in recognition of Passover, many people go nights, the whole night at least, and nights without sleep as a representation of being prepared and being ready and being observant of what the Lord is going to do. They were expectant. As we think about that anticipation of the freedom that the Passover brought, we should all have greater feelings of anticipation. Greater feelings of expectation. Because this time the angel of the Lord did not pass over his people. This time the angel of the Lord pulled his people out. He redeemed his people. He saved his people. And the blood, instead of being on the doorpost of their houses, was on the doorposts and the lintel of their heart. And the angel of the Lord, although he left and returned to glory, he has left us with the Spirit of God who dwells with us, who fills us with anticipation and hope of a future return. In this season and throughout the year, we should, friends, like the Jews of the Passover, like the Jews around John the Baptist's time who were still patiently waiting for Messiah, we should wait patiently. Friends, we should not get bored with the day-to-day, the mundane of being a Christian. But we should patiently wait for the Lord. I want to tell you, friends, you need to hear this because... You are going to miss this. I have run across hundreds if not thousands of Christians who are looking and expecting and, wait, and waiting for God to move only in big ways. To move only in big ways. Can I promise you something, friends? And I haven't lived on this earth very long. And some of you have lived on this earth longer with me. And I hope that you would affirm this as to what I'm about to say. Longer than me? I didn't mean to say with me. Um, I hope that you would affirm what I'm about to say. But growth and life and the visible appearance of God happens in the everyday and the mundane more than it does in the huge and wild and crazy and out there. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that that wild and crazy and wonderful doesn't happen. But here is the, here is, here is the problem I think, with and I I know this because I recognize this in my own life. As an impulsive person, we think if God is not doing something big that he's not doing something. And that's just not the truth. That if God is not shuffling me around, if he's not making something, if he's not making big moves in my life that he's not doing something. You need to hear this, and it may disappoint you. God moves more in the mundane and everyday than he moves in any other way in the average Christian's life. You need to hear that. Because if not, you will be discontent and searching your entire life. So what do we do? We wait. We wait expectantly. Our faith teaches us to, to, I mean, excuse me, we wait patiently. We should not get bored with the day-to-day of Christianity. And, and, And what happens then is this. When we do get bored with the day-to-day of Christianity, what happens is when, when, the, when the high that God doesn't bring us by moving us around and shaking us up doesn't come, when that doesn't come, what happens? What happens is, friends, Christians seek it somewhere else. This is why Christians who have been faithful for so long often fall into the traps of the world. Because God doesn't give them the high they need in the moving and the shaking of their life, so they go get it somewhere else. They go get it in fulfillment with a a partner, a, a husband, or a wife, or children, with possessions, with things, with jobs. Because waiting for Christ to operate in the mundane is just not fun, it's just not exciting. It wouldn't make TV, folks. But the people of God they waited on God. They waited on God patiently. The one who obeys God, they wait on God patiently. But but they wait expectantly. They wait expectantly. Our faith teaches us to expect big things about God. Big things from God. So we wait expectantly. During the time of the mundane we're patient. But then, just at the right moment, God provides these big and awesome things in our lives. And we're like, you know what? That was so refreshing. Not only because it meant so much to me personally, but also it proves to me and it proves to others in a way, you know, prove is probably not the best word, but that God exists and he's working in my life. So we wait patiently. We understand that most of the things in our life happen in the mundane, but we also wait expectantly, knowing that God still does big things in our lives just like these people at the Passover, just like those early Christians. We should be hopeful in His second coming. I mean, His first coming. But also hopeful in His second coming. We should be hopeful in His first coming. Hopeful because it gives us abundant life now. It gives us eternal life if we die before He returns. But if we don't die before He returns, He is going to take His children up. And we will live and reign with him forever in a new Eden. A new place created perfectly without flaw and never to be infiltrated by the sin of mankind. So we're hopeful in his first coming, but we're also hopeful in his second coming. Friends, I have found in my life the thing that offers me the most balanced is to be content enough that if God doesn't do anything big in my life for weeks or months or years, it's okay to just be growing in Christ and sanctification. But to be hopeful enough that I expect it to come tomorrow too. Right? To be hopeful enough that I expect it to come tomorrow. To be content enough in my salvation that if all I'm doing is growing in Christ, that that is enough. But to be hopeful enough for the future that I live and have purposes in my life that are bigger than me, that are bigger than my family, that are bigger than today. Live content, knowing that we are to grow and live in this world, but knowing also that we're not of this world, so one day we will be with Him. There's this hopeful expectation and balance in those things. We should be hopeful. We should be observant. Not John Hagee observant, but we should be observant, waiting for him to return. Looking at signs, looking at, not signs in the, in the John Hagee sense again. I'm sorry if you like him, but you shouldn't. Um, looking at signs, not in the John Hagee way. Not in the like, we have to, we shouldn't have to have a board up here with a timeline to try to figure out when Jesus is going to return. We should look at the world and we should look at Christ's people being redeemed, but the world pursuing other things. We should look at the times and just understand that because Jesus has already come, that any day since the time that Jesus returned, since the time that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended until now, Jesus could return. And so we observe and we wait and we are ready for the feast. We are ready for the wedding feast. We, love our, we live our lives in that way, and we are prayerful. We are prayerful in that. Can you imagine the anticipation and the hope of the people of God the night of the Passover? Excited, but patient. Observant, ready for God to give them the go, but prayerful. Understanding, friends, and this is most important, Not more important, but it's very important. Understanding that if the Holy Spirit does not lead us, we will not make it to see the return of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit does not lead us, we will not make it into the gates of eternity with God. If the Holy Spirit is not in us, then we are not in God, and it's not a place we want to be. You know the two ways that have been verified for me more than any other way, that I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and Christ is in God. Christ is God, and because of that, it's all good. You know the two ways? Through the Bible and prayer. I have not found, I have not found any other two ways. Now, confirmation of friends and other believers, that's great. The way the world goes and how it lines up with the Bible, that helps. But the Scriptures and prayer are the two ways that I've known more, most assuredly that the blood is on the lentils and the doorpost of my heart. Friends, you don't need to go and live insecure lives. If the Passover tells us anything, the Passover tells us this. If Christ is in you, that is your identity, and he is your redeemer. If If the Passover tells us anything, the Passover tells us that if you are covered in the blood of Christ... No death can harm you. No enemy can come against you. If the Passover tells us anything, it tells us that we are completely dependent and hopeless without Christ. But when Christ draws his kingdom up and he plants it in our life, he plants that banner on our heart. We have protection And we have hope. And we have a future. All things we couldn't offer ourselves. All things. given. Would you trust him? Christian. Would you trust him if you haven't? Would you stop doubting? Continue to doubt yourself. But stop doubting God. Continue to doubt yourself. Because if you doubt yourself. What you realize is that you're helpless. And you need help. And it causes you to put more trust and hope in God. If you have not trusted in Jesus today, if you still think that you've lived a whole life trying but a whole life failing and you have not trusted in Jesus, you can do that today and his flag will be planted on your heart. The banner of the Lord will be what is seen first and salvation will be promised now and forever. It comes by repenting, changing the way you act Changing the way you think, excuse me, first, which changes the way you act. Repentance is a 180 degree turn in mindset that changes the way you act. But it only comes through faith that God gives you to change, to be the person that he wants you to be. It comes through Christ. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes through the calling of God before the foundation of the world. The adoption of God from God. If you're a Christian here, we can wait and hope and be thankful for what God has done and for his return, and we can be rightfully anticipating, hopefully anticipating, joyfully anticipating instead of anxiously anticipating. We pray with me today. God, you're good, and we love you, and we pray that you would just bless our time, bless our community that we would be a group that strengthens each other, that builds each other up. Lord, that we would be a community, a church body where the, the banner of Jesus is planted faithfully in our hearts. And we spread his word and his fame to the world. Lord, that we would not accept, we would not accept uh, mediocrity. We would not accept failure because, Lord, if we were in Christ, the victory has been won. We pray that you would bless this time, bless, our, bless our, our church, that we may know you and spread your name. To the name of Jesus we pray, amen.